Men, please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles once again to the book of Acts, chapter 15. I do have the section of verses we're looking at closely there on your insert. The book of Acts, chapter 15, one of the most profound and important chapters in all of the Scriptures. Uh, This is the chapter that records for us the Jerusalem Council, this meeting of the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem to be clear about the gospel as it was going forward and churches were coming into being and Christians were, uh, the amount of Christians were growing and there was controversy between the Jews and the Gentiles about what it uh, took to be saved and the council confirmed that it's faith in Christ alone. Uh, That's what it takes to be saved. And so there was excitement after this council and Paul and Barnabas went back to Antioch with some other messengers and delivered this great message to Antioch. It brought great encouragement. The gospel spread even further. Um, Teaching went on in Antioch, and Paul and Barnabas continued to teach for some time after. And then we come to this passage at the end of one of the great chapters of unity in the church, in the history of the church. And we come to verses 36 through 41 now, the end of chapter 15, where we have two men who have loved each other greatly separating over something. Let's follow together as I read God's holy word. This is Acts 15, 36 through 41. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed. Having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord, we come to the end of a profound chapter in the New Testament. We are grateful for the defense of the gospel on display in Acts chapter 15. Now we arrive at a passage that can create some amount of puzzlement in our minds and our thinking. How could these two men you so mightily in the early church, Paul and Barnabas, separate over a seemingly small matter. Please give us understanding and insight as we seek to understand and also to apply your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have before us a very interesting account, and it's one of those many times in Scripture where something glorious happens, and it seems to happen at some human level, where people get together and agree, and something monumental happens for the kingdom of God. And lest we be lulled into thinking that man did something to create this, the Scripture consistently reminds us of man's frailty, man's weakness. It's not always outright sin, but just the fact that we're weak, and that we come up short so often in our own ways of thinking and working things through. Here is a case no different. You have this glorious 
Council of Jerusalem, clarifying the most important question that could ever be clarified. How might we be right with God? And the answer is confirmed. You must have faith in Christ and His finished work alone. You don't need to add to it anything else. In this glorious recommitment to the clarity of the age-old gospel goes forward from the Council of Jerusalem, and now the two main players that brought it to light, Barnabas and Paul. Let's go back to those places where we brought the gospel the first time, check up on everybody, and preach it again. Seems simple enough. They should be able to overlook anything to go do this again. But yet we come to this situation where Paul and Barnabas separate from each other and go separate ways into ministry over the matter of Mark, John Mark. What we see come forward from this is not crippling division, but rather the church continues to grow. And what we learn afresh from this, God overrules human strife and division for his own purposes. Now, it's not to say that all strife and division is okay. It's not. Most of the time, it's not. But there are occasions we witness in Scripture and occasions in our own lives and existence as Christians where we see a separation, but yet God works through that separation among Christians to bring glory to himself. This is a passage that gets us considering this issue and studying it a little further. God overrules human strife and division for his purposes. Let's look first at the passage where we see Paul and Barnabas disagree. We might say, universally, Godly people won't always agree. Verse 36, some days, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers at every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Remember that first missionary journey where they, they sailed across the Mediterranean going west to Cyprus, ministered there, then over again across the Mediterranean north to Galatia and those churches in the Galatian regions. He wanted to go back there after the Council of Jerusalem, sometime at Antioch now, and find out how everyone was doing. That was Paul's first inclination. Barnabas agrees, at least we understand that much, but now look at verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn or departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. This goes back, and we'll return to this in a moment to be refreshed, to the time that Mark basically bailed out on them in a critical juncture during their missionary journey that I just outlined. Verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement. A sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. We've been watching these two brothers complement one another wonderfully. About a week ago, I was at an event, a little more than a week ago, and I was, we were waiting for the event to start. We were in an audience sort of like this, and I was noticing a few rows ahead. Two people I knew uh, were arguing pretty ardently. They were having a pretty sharp disagreement. And I was trying to be nosy and hear what they were talking about, but I couldn't really hear. And as people were walking around, another person came in and talked to them, and then they quieted down, and, they kinda, and then the, the event went on. But I thought to myself, what was going on there? What, what could be happening? I know the two people involved. I just would wonder what got them so animated. So um, it seemed to be in disagreement. At least that's the way it came across to me. 
when you're watching this episode with Paul and Barnabas, I, I hope you're like me. You're like, what went into this? I mean, what could be so significant that would cause them to part ways at this moment? Everything had been going so wonderful and so well. What's the story here? Well, it helps to recall who Mark is in the relationship. That will help us unpack some other features that give us insight anyways on what's happening. Um, We know from a letter that Paul writes to the Colossians some 10 years after this event, um, we learned that Barnabas was the cousin of Mark, and this is their relationship. It says in Colossians, as Paul's closing the letter, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, when it comes to you, welcome him. So we know 10 years ago, or 10 years later, excuse me, um, he refers to him as Barnabas' cousin, that's Mark, and also that he thinks well of Mark, so even though there's a division over Mark, keep in mind, there's not something deeply personal about this issue. It seems more strategic, nevertheless a disagreement between two godly people, and that happens sometimes. Um, but this is the cousin of Barnabas. That gives you a little bit of uh, the insight on how, what his relationship would have been like. So when Paul doesn't want to take Mark again, there's a, a family uh, connection here that concerns Barnabas. He wants Mark to have a second chance. He wants Mark to be able to go one more time with them. But let's continue trying to understand who Mark is a little better. In Acts chapter 12, a passage we studied uh, a couple months ago, it says, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Now that was after the, the, the first James was killed and Peter was in prison. Um, all sorts of persecution was erupting in Jerusalem. So Paul and Barnabas left, and it says, They returned from Jerusalem, going to Antioch, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, John Mark. So it's at that time in Jerusalem, Mark joins up with Paul and Barnabas, and they head up to Antioch together, where that teaching ministry happens uh, in Antioch. His cousin, traveling with them, and is of some kind of assistance or encouragement to them, no doubt. Then we come to Acts chapter 13. When they're ready to go on their missionary journey, we hear John Mark's name again. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. And they had John there to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. I hope some of these names are, are re- coming back to your memory about some of the harrowing experiences Paul and Barnabas had. I mean, death, near-death experiences where Paul was almost stoned to death. He was left for dead. Um, he got sick multiple times. We read in other epistles, during this missionary journey, he was battling possibly malaria, something like it. Difficult, harrowing trip they're on. And it says by, John, by Luke's pen... And they had John to assist them. So John was assisting. He was helping. He was maybe providing some logistics for them. Any missionary journey needs support, needs uh, people backing you up, helping you, providing for you. And it appears that Mark had that role with Paul and Barnabas as they traveled in a most harrowing way, bringing the gospel. Towards the end of chapter 13, they're not even halfway done with the missionary journey. They sail to another island And right after sailing, we read this. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Now we wouldn't think much of this if all the rest hadn't developed. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's Mark. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia, that's the other Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. They carried on with the ministry. But John Mark left them. And Paul saw that departure as a major event. He felt that Mark left them in a lurch. Maybe if he hadn't left them before they, they sailed, they could have found somebody or taken a little longer to have a replacement. But instead, he waited till they got to the very first spot and then left. Bailing is what Paul saw this as. He needed the support. Now, John Mark is not a major story in the line of the New Testament or the, in the storyline of the New Testament, uh, but Luke clearly notes that his relationship with Paul and Barnabas had complexities, and his actions, because of where it leads these two giants of the church, are important for us to consider. Now we come to the passage before us, Acts 15, verse 37. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. They're going to go on another trip. This time it would be a repeat of the other one. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia. We have the clear interpretation of Paul about what Mark did. And notice, you don't have Barnabas say, but that's not what he did, Paul. He doesn't say that. Barnabas wants him to have another chance. And Paul's saying, this is too critical. We can't have this happen again. Not now. This can't occur. And a sharp division arises. In fact, that's exactly how it's described. And there arose a sharp disagreement. You have two godly men who disagree about how Mark should figure into the next missionary journey. Uh, There's no question that this is a disagreement that they can't come to a conclusion on. And it doesn't seem like there's anyone there to help to convince the two men. This sometimes happens. Um, This isn't a local church application completely that we're looking at here. Um, We have commitments with one another in a local church that don't allow for this kind of separation, if you will, Uh, in some senses. There are opportunities where we might not work side by side, but we're still in the same congregation together. But there's a a bigger church consideration here, especially as we start to think about denominations and and fellow Christians who work in different organizations and how we might cooperate, things like this. All sorts of ideas flood our minds about how this might apply. But we see here Paul and Barnabas disagreeing. You know, ministry like this puts pressure on relationships, and sometimes the, the chemistry between those ministering can be challenging And the issue with Mark was something that lingered for sure. I think one of the reasons, by the way, we should go on mission trips is to appreciate the challenge there is in doing ministry, outreach, preaching the gospel, supporting the gospel, doing that ministry in close quarters with people you're not used to being with who have different personalities and being pressured and then having to serve the Lord and not think of ourselves and our own rights or our own wants or desires. Everybody should try that at some time just to appreciate that aspect of ministry life and pressure. We see that for sure. In fact, our mission trips are only a week by design because maybe that's about as long as it might work out for some of us together. But we can certainly do it. But we do recognize in those contexts we are complex people. Not all of it is directly because of our sinfulness. It's just sometimes the way we are wired is different. We should find ways to be unified, but there might be opportunities, too, to selectively pick how we might work so that we're most effective as a group and not causing disagreement when it comes about. So much to consider here. We can only analyze this episode so far, but we do see two godly people, undoubtedly godly people, who just disagree about this one aspect of the next missionary journey. Now, 
what I want you to notice in verse 39 is that sometimes, and we have to be careful about how often we would apply this, but sometimes a level of respectful, I say that with emphasis, respectful separation is necessary. This isn't radical disfellowship that we see here. This is just a respectful separation, and it's necessary for them to go to the next step of ministry. Look at verse 39. There arose a sharp disagreement, so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So they're going the direction that Paul had initially said we should go, back to Cyprus and presumably the rest of that trip. It turns out that Paul and Silas go a different direction on the second missionary journey of Paul that we'll start to look at. But there's a separation that happens here. It's undeniable. Yet we don't hear sin called out. We don't see Barnabas disagreeing that Mark did what he did. We don't hear from Mark at all in this episode. We feel for him. How many of us have failed at things and then we're not allowed to do it again? And so we feel all of what's happening here. But something I would like you to recognize um, is how this falls out ultimately in a respectful manner that actually works in favor, by God's overruling, uh, in favor of expansion of the kingdom and multiplication. But for now, consider something that maybe you haven't thought of before. You have Paul and you have Barnabas. These are two very different individuals. And to this point, in this strategy for the church growth and for the church mission, it's been working wonderfully. But we know something about both, both of these men, and we can see how it unfolds. Paul, without a doubt, is task-oriented. He is driven towards goals. He has before him regions that need to hear the gospel proclaimed, and he has mapped out where these stops will be. And he has a timetable in his mind that he's going to march forward with the message of the gospel, the way they did it the last time. He should expect that everyone would get what the plan is. That's his nature, and God uses him for this. He's got this task-driven, goal-oriented function. That's how he operates, and so he's ready to go. And if Mark may fail them again, this is going to stop the plan. And we have tasks to accomplish and goals to reach, and this has to be done. And God uses those kinds of people all the time. They're important to the kingdom of God. Barnabas, though, is different than this. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. Remember, the main introduction we had to him is when he came after a work of, of evangelistic ministry had happened in Antioch, and he encourages them to keep on in Christ, keep on walking with the Lord, hear and remember the gospel, stay true to them, the son of encouragement, a deacon at heart. He cares about people, in particular, their needs and what, how they feel and the ways in which they will function in their walk with Christ. He's far more relationally oriented. And so what comes to him when Paul says, we're not going to take Mark, he didn't say, oh, I don't want to do a missionary journey then. So, well, we should take Mark. He's my cousin. I mean, he messed up, but should he just be put off, uh, off and never minister again? So who knows? I, I have a feeling some of that argument they had would have been like that. End of the day, Barnabas is still going to lead a mission. It may go a little slower than Paul's, and it may have take a different approach than Paul's. Not everybody can keep up with Paul's approach. And then you've got Barnabas, who Paul's saying, come on, man, we got to get moving. And we can't keep Mark with us because he's not going to help us move. And that was Paul's ministry and Barnabas's ministry. Neither are wrong. And God uses Barnabas's all the time in the kingdom, and they're very important. And God uses Mark's in the kingdom too. That mess up, which would be just about all of us, and God uses in different ways. Sometimes we're just not put in the right place, and we discover that. It's uncomfortable. But then we figure it out in, by help of others, and we are repurposed, as they say, and it works well. Sometimes, though, a level of separation is necessary. They recognize this, 
and they go their separate ways into ministry. You know, this bugged me for a while as I read this, because I really do believe one of the efforts of the church at large should be towards unity. Um, We can't ever compromise the doctrinal truths, namely that the Scripture is our authority and that the gospel is faith alone and Christ alone. So if we can agree with this, why can't we get along better than we do across the board? And that's a difficult challenge, and we should strive for that. And Calvin said something that has always resonated with me in knowing that Calvin himself was starting or part of starting a reformation that brought some level of division to the visible church anyways. But he said, among Christians, there ought to be so great a dislike of schism as that they may always avoid it so fast as lies in their power. That was something he was driven towards. He wanted unity. But I think what he means about schism has to do with rancorous disfellowship or division between us. Uh, We can't have that. It's not that there won't be opportunity or occasion where we just will not be aligned enough to work side by side together with certain things, but we are still under the whole, the pale of the church united in Christ. I think that's what he means by schism when he writes of it. You know, I think of this all the time in my daily life, especially now we're living 2,000 years later where there's been lots of splinters of the church and Christian organizations over time. You know, I'm working on a couple degrees right now from Midwestern Baptist Seminary. Now, you can imagine in my seminars, there's 20 to 25 guys. I am the only Presbyterian in all six of the ones I already took for the doctoral portion of it. And uh, I am the lone token, uh, I don't know, whipping boy Presbyterian in there. And why would you subject yourself to these Baptists, Tony? Because they are strong on the Word of God, they're strong in the authority of the Word of God, and they get the gospel right, we can get along on that level. And I have to accept a little bit of beating from time to time about certain particular positions, and they're loving in the beatings that they give me over this, and I enjoy it too, as you might imagine, because then I have some opportunity. Now, we're separate in our ministries in some sense, and then we have other ways in which we're united. Uh, One of the great uh, stories I like to tell that I wanted to save for when I have him come speak here at some point, the president. Jason Allen, he's a godly man who's led that institution in a great direction. I had him for a seminar, and the seminar met in the boardroom outside of his office. And let me tell you, the Baptists, they do it nice. You should see these boardrooms and these offices these guys have. No deer heads in their offices. They got portraits. Uh, Anyways, we were in the class for the week, and every once in a while, they would kind of launch into a little bit of pick on me for being the Presbyterian and the sprinklers, you know, and they're making fun of how we baptize. And it was, it was in good fun, so don't take it at all in, in, in worse than what it was, and I dish a little out here and there. So as we're in the class together talking, Jason Allen once said, because I had been baptized as an adult by sprinkling, because they asked me what mode, and they said, well, that's insufficient baptism, brother. You've been insufficiently baptized. They weren't saying I wasn't saved. They were just saying that's an insufficient baptism. And so I sat there, I was a little bit, I wasn't hot under the collar or anything like that, I was just kind of like, man, what can I say to that? And so a couple classes went by, and they had just finished remodeling his presidential suite about a few months before, and he wanted to show us the new office that he had devised. So we walked into his office. Now, Dr. Allen is about 6'7 or 6'8, big, kind of intimidating guy, really friendly, but you know, if you don't know him, and he's standing in the office and he's showing us these portraits and the middle portrait is the patron saint of the Midwestern Baptist Seminary, who is Charles Spurgeon. And there he is. And we love Spurgeon too, us Presbyterians. We like him too. I quote him all the time. Charles Spurgeon in the middle. And the, all the guys were excited. I mean, all the young guys are appreciating this Spurgeon. And I'm looking at the other two, and I could tell most of the class probably didn't know who they were. And on the right is George Whitfield. And on the left is Jonathan Edwards. 
And it took me not even 30 seconds, but I had to wait for my time. And I, Dr. Allen looked at me, and he could kind of know I was coming. I said, Dr. Allen, I'm wondering how many insufficiently baptized individuals do you have on your wall right here? <laughs> As it turns out, two of the three were insufficiently baptized. It was a glorious day. I mean, I, all six seminars, it was wonderful. I enjoyed every bit of it. And I tell you the story to tell you that there is separation. We're, not, we're different denominations. There's different functions we do and things we have, um, ministries that we're called to. Um, but we are united in Christ, and we are encouraging one another in our separate ministries. We're not disfellowship. We don't dislike each other. We disagree about some things. And we go on in ministry because key things unite us, and that's okay. Until Jesus comes back, only he will be able to bring the full unity that we all want but we can't find exactly yet, but let's recognize what's important though, stick with those things, encourage one another's ministries, have fellowship in areas we can, and just appreciate that this is a dynamic and it causes us to be humble and trust in the Lord, even where we disagree. I think this unfolds a bit in this story. In fact, when we think of Mark, I want you to recognize that Mark is a man who finds his purpose. And we know this from little inklings in the New Testament that unfold after this. This episode where they separate happened around 50 AD, 50 AD, 17 years after Jesus ascended. Um, Now they're well into the church expanding. 50 AD this occurs. And then Mark and Barnabas go back to Cyprus and they follow ministry. And then Paul and Silas go on their way in the second missionary journey. About 11 years later, the apostle Peter is writing one of his epistles, his first epistle, and listen to what he says 11 years after this episode. He's just writing some final comments to people who are reading the book. He says, By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. So 11 years later, Mark is in ministry with Peter. He probably knew Peter before he met Paul. And now he's back with Peter in some capacity. No doubt, using his supportive gifts, whatever it is that he did well, he was a help to Peter. Then, this is what is so beautiful about the story. Paul, closing his second letter to Timothy, one of the last, probably the last book he wrote. He's writing to the pastor Timothy at Ephesus. And listen to how Paul refers to Mark some 12 years later, a little after the time Peter wrote, now Paul writes. Do your best to come to me soon, he's saying that to Timothy. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. So there was this division that happened in 50 AD, but in 62 AD, as Mark has grown, and continued to exercise his ministry. He didn't crawl up into a ball because one person told him he couldn't come on a missionary trip. He kept serving the Lord, and he becomes useful to the apostles. And where is he most useful? When you open your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, who do we think wrote that? It's Mark. And it's the first Gospel that was penned, probably the one that Matthew and Luke referred to as they began their explanations of the life of Christ. It's a great picture for all of us. We're going to fail. And we may be told we can't do this or that. It doesn't mean we can't still serve. So many lessons for us here in this wonderful story, this account, as difficult as it is when we read it. Sometimes a level of respectful separation is necessary. That's what we have here. Now, what happened after the separation? Uh, Did the kingdom fold? Uh, Did the effort of 
the gospel to go forward and the Great Commission flounder as a result? That's not the way that it's depicted. Look at verse 39, the second part. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So one result of the separation, for as uncomfortable as it is, um, is the formation of two missionary teams now. And they go minister the way God has gifted them to minister, and they go forth and are fruitful from all we can tell. F.F. Bruce in his commentary, captures it this way. The present disagreement was overruled for good. Instead of one missionary and pastoral expedition, there are two. Now, we don't know a lot about Barnabas uh, after this separation. We learn a little more about Mark, as we've seen. But all indications point to him continuing as a local church leader. We see that Mark remains active and helpful in many other ways. Phil Kaiser, in his commentary on this passage, sums it up well. If God is sovereign over all things, as he says he is in his word, then we can have confidence that he used even this painful event for their good and for God's glory. The Lord used the love, uh, the love and relational skills of Barnabas to restore Mark and give him a sense of belonging. Without Barnabas, Paul's approach to life could easily make a person give up. But God used Paul's example to make Mark long to be more than he was. Sure, Paul was way out there. Sure, it was hard to keep up with him. But the Spirit used Paul's example to stir up Mark's desire as well. We can see how God uses this division to really bring unity and multiplication. About 12 years ago, when um, we'd finished the sanctuary, we had that long hall that leads down from the school gym complex to here. And I looked at it and thought, man, I'm not a huge interior decorator, as you may know. But I thought it needed something in it. And I knew deer heads would not be an option, so I had to decide on something more sanctified. And so I made the suggestion, let's get some pictures of church history, put a few of those in the hall, just get people thinking while they're looking at the book table and they're having some coffee. And uh, one of my favorite pictures that I found was a picture of the Westminster Assembly. This was convened in 1640. Um, At that time, the monarchy was off the throne and the parliament had taken over England. And basically, Oliver Cromwell called on behalf of the parliament all the Protestant ministers in England and Ireland and uh, in Scotland to pen a document that would do what? Unify the Protestant churches in Great Britain. That was the effort. And so 150 people were invited, 122 could make the trip, and that's no easy thing, 450 years ago, to make a trip to the Westminster Abbey and then stay there for several years off and on to pen this unifying document. And so I was trying to find a picture of the Westminster Assembly. So I looked it up and I found a picture that's pretty famous and is part of a a new development in multimedia extravaganza, I'm going to show you that picture. There's next, next week, it'll be a smoke machine and a drum set after that. So anyways, kidding, kidding, because I, I know I'll get an email. There's no drum coming, I promise you. Um, anyways, this picture is the picture I chose to put up. Oliver Cromwell's in there, and they're standing up. They look like some, you know, 17th century guys um, discussing a lot of important stuff. It's a Westminster Assembly, and they came up with, I think, is the greatest confessional statement that a church has ever seen. I think there's some really good ones, but I think it's the most thorough. It's the the one that basically gives our church foundation, the Presbyterian Church, the Reformed Church, and many uh, spheres of the world have followed it. Many people who are are not necessarily would line up exactly with us ecclesiastically appreciate the document. So here's the picture. Great picture, right? So I put it over the um, coffee machine, the coffee area, and uh, 12 years ago, I had Dr. Calhoun 
who is an eminent church historian, my mentor, and I mean top-notch church history man of all times. So he'll be thought of that way 50 years from now. He was speaking at our church, and he was getting coffee. I stopped there, and he looked at the picture and chuckled. Dr. Calhoun, what are you laughing at the picture for? This is the Westminster Assembly. This is the greatest thing ever. He goes, oh, I agree it is. He goes, but it's just funny that most Christians don't know, most Reformed believers don't know what's happening in the picture. Well, it's the assembly. What else do I need to know? Well, it turns out, so here's the label on it. The assertion of liberty of conscience by the independents at the Westminster Assembly. Okay, we're Presbyterians. We're not independents. The whole point is these 20 guys didn't like that the assembly was deciding on a Presbyterian form of government. They didn't like elder rule alone. So they were standing up in protest, and the picture is them standing up in protest. It's a celebration of them celebrating to basically divide the assembly to do something different. So after three years, they didn't agree with this point, and they stood up and argued with it. The greatest unifying feature of the Reformed Church are these confessions, and this picture is of a division that happened with it. My point. These are godly men. They loved each other. They agreed with about everything in the confession. They just thought church government should be a little bit different, and they went on and did their own thing. And uh, over 120 people ratified this. My point is we can still get along with other Christians even if we don't exactly agree on particulars of doctrine. They are important matters. We should have churches that, that gather around a strong, strict statement, and we have a kind of union that's different that we would have with other denominations. But if they believe in the Scriptures, and they believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation, we can get along on all, so many ways, and we should never disparage each other. We should never speak against other believers who believe those things. Now, we can certainly disagree, have debate, loving debate, respectful debate, and even some separation that may occur, but let's never get to a place where on earth we think we're so wise that we figured it all out, and we just got it just right. Even the place that founded what we think is the greatest doctrinal statement had a division among itself to the point that this picture, think of this when you go to the coffee machine every once in a while, think of our great reformed faith and remember that we're still brothers and sisters with other Christians who believe these things. Let's never forget that. God could take division and human strife, overrule it for his grace and his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful for the many, many ways you prove your wisdom over ours, and we are humbled, but we are appreciative that you are on the throne. You are the one guiding. You are the one directing. Lord, as we think of this episode in the book of Acts, uh, we recognize that those opportunities that arise to be tested and try to stay as unified as we can. We ask for your spirit to give us that unity, but Lord, we also recognize that there are times where we just have to do separate ministries or pursue separate tracks along the same goal line. Lord, I thank you for this congregation. I pray that you would give us humility, um, appreciation, and love of conviction that we have been given by you, but not so much that we would not recognize the great kingdom work you're doing across denominational lines and across Christian organizations. May we be an encouragement to the greater Church of Christ by the way we speak of the, the Scripture and of the Gospel and our brothers and sisters in Christ who may differ with us on some things. Lord, we long to see everybody come to know Christ. And so whether you use Grace Church across the street or Blue Valley Baptist down the road or whatever church up the other part of the street, if they're preaching the Bible and they're preaching Christ, I pray that you would expand your kingdom. At the same time, I pray that you'd give us a fellowship that does help us become more focused on what your Word says, more direct about what it means, and not give up on that either. Lord, we long for your grace. We look, to forward, or we look at this example that we have seen here in the New Testament. We pray for it to be lived out in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.